Hey, everybody. Thank you. Uh, if you would, turn in your worship guide to the scripture for today, which is Genesis 4. Or if you have your your own Bible or your Bible app, whatever you like to use, or if you just like to listen. This is the last uh, stop on our long hike through the first early chapters of Genesis. You know, we had originally planned on doing Genesis 1 through 3, because that's what you do. That's what pastors do. They do Genesis 1 through 3 sermon series. But getting into this, you get to chapter 4, and it becomes clear, oh, this is part of that same story. So we added this one on because it's uh, critically important. So this, but so we're doing this here in Genesis 4 today, but it is our last stop on the long hike through Genesis. Um, next week, following our custom, we'll hit the Psalms and do pick up where we left off. Last time we were in between series, and we'll do that for a while. Sometime we'll come back and we'll hit Genesis 5 and we'll keep going. Eventually we'll get to the whole book. But that's where we are. So that's our little orientation spiel for the beginning of this. So enough of that. Let's get to the Bible. Uh, Would you look at the text and would you stand for the reading of God's word? Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I could bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. 
So Cain went out from the Lord's presence, and he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal came, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal's Tubal Cain's sister was Noamah, and Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. And Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son. And named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. Lord, this is a tough one. I pray that you would help us, even though it shines so brightly on our own brokenness. I pray that you would give us the grace to look straight into it and see Jesus, our Redeemer, the Prince of Peace. It's in his name. Amen. You guys can be seated. All right, so uh, this is clearly a sad story. And, you know, we, we're ending this Genesis 1 through 4 series with a sad one. And it's designed that way. After chapter 4, there's a natural break in the text. The focus shifts a little bit, starts a new story leading up to the story of Noah and the ark. So the author, Moses, and the editors who came after him, inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit as they wrote this, meant for, meant for this story about the origin and the creation of the world, the creation of the land, which was like a temple where people were going to commune with God, um, the creation of mankind, man and woman together in God's image, the installation of Adam as a kind of high priest for all of humanity, um, the fall, exile from the garden, that whole epic narrative that we've been walking through together. It ends here on this sad note. This is a tragedy. Did you know that the story, the inspired by the Holy Spirit story of the origin of the world is written as a tragedy? 
I think that that might be a little strange because we're supposed to be a hopeful people. Uh, but just because this is written as a tragedy doesn't mean that there's not hope in it. We see in this story, uh, it might be a little hard to see at first, but once you put your eyes on the ray of hope in the story, it is incredibly bright. Uh, so that's sort of the goal here in this time. I want to draw out what it is that we're supposed to learn from this tragic story. What did Moses what did the early arrangers of Moses' text, what was the Holy Spirit, even better? What does he want us to get from this? Are we supposed to just read it and feel bad? Uh, I don't think so. I think we are supposed to feel bad, but not to end there. Um, so the tragedy and hidden comedy of the story of Cain and Abel. What is there for us? Well, there is um, what we could call maybe the popular understanding of this story. Throughout the series, we have uh, some, we have focused on these stories. How many of them have become almost like a cheap folk folktale status in our culture? There are cultural forms of the story of Adam and Eve story of the Garden of Eden and the snake. And those cultural forms of the story don't always, and in fact, usually don't at all, uh, stay faithful to what we find in the text. So we've, we've kind of been doing some myth-busting in the series. But this story, the cultural folktale version of this, that Adam and Eve's rebellion against God resulted in Strife between human beings, brother against brother, violence and murder and hate. That folktale version of this story is absolutely true. And it's good for us when we read this to not um, separate ourselves from the fact that this story about these two brothers is in so many ways a story about us. When we read about how Cain killed his brother Abel, lied to God, covered it up, we are reading about the violence in the world today. We are reading about the violence in our own hearts. We are reading about our own broken families. We are reading about abuse. I love that uh, David Atkinson um, major league Bible scholar, he says this, in this world, in this world, there is Abel and there is Cain. In ourselves also, there is Abel and there is Cain. That is so true. I think it's good for us to stop here at the beginning of this and just take a moment to weigh the seriousness of this story. Folks, the, the, the thing that separates us from God, the rebellion that starts in our hearts and separates us from God, that same thing separates us from one another. The reason we live in a world with so much hate and with so much violence and abuse and racism and inequality, all of these things that we've talked about throughout this series, it's because of the fall. It's because we, as a human race, have become enemies with God. 
And we're, we're, it's so deep, we're even born into it. Which means that the brokenness that exists between us, its source is a brokenness between us and God. It's good for us to remember that. When we come in here each week to worship the Lord, to celebrate the reconciliation that he has fought for and won and secured in the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. When we come to celebrate the reconciliation between mankind and God, we need to remember, it's essential for us to remember, that we can't separate being reconciled to God from being reconciled to our brothers and sisters. There's a thing in our culture and there's a thing in contemporary church land that we tend to want to separate those things. Are you a reconciliation with God kind of church or are you reconciliation with your neighbor kind of church? Are you a worshiping church or are you a justice church? We tend to separate these things. But biblically, right here at the beginning, there is no separation between being reconciled to God and being reconciled to brother or sister. So that's what this story is about. Now, we don't just want to leave it there. We don't just want to walk up to the story and see this like beautiful, grand, huge human uh reconciliation with God with one another theme and say, oh, that's great. Now we can move on. We, we want to get into it. We want to dig deep into it. We want to see the details. We want to see things we can hold on to because we want to this story to become implanted in our hearts and start shaping who we are. So how do we do that? What, what can we grab onto in this story? Other than this giant theme that we just, that we can stand in awe of. How do we make this our own? How do we get it into our hearts? Well, as I've studied this this week, I see three themes in the story that I think latching onto these three themes helps us to internalize uh, the truth of this story in a way that's actually going to lead us to action. It's going to lead us to be better worshipers. It's going to lead us to be better reconcilers and agents of justice in the world. So three handles, if you will, by which we can grab a hold of this giant Cain and Abel thing and internalize it. First is this. It's the truth that sin outdoes itself. If you're a sermon note taker, this is your number one. Sin, we've talked a lot about sin in the last few weeks. Sin outdoes itself. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that sin, it starts small. But it has a natural tendency to grow. And when left alone on its own, it will grow until it takes over and pollutes everything. Sin outdoes itself. It is multiplying by nature. I don't know. I probably shouldn't do this. I've, I've done this once before. I try not to do this because I could do it every week. But there's a great Star Trek illustration 
And I don't know if you've ever seen the famous episode in the original series called The Trouble with Tribbles. Have you guys seen this? Tribbles are these little, beautiful, cute, furry creatures that you just can't resist. So you bring them up to your ship, you bring them into your home, and oh, they have a tendency to multiply. And they can't be stopped. And next thing you know, we have tribbles everywhere. And these cute little things that we love to hold and interact with become a threat not only to our lives, but to our community. So if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you should look up the trouble of tribbles and watch it. It's a great illustration of how sin outdoes itself. It starts small, but when left alone, it always multiplies. Look at the story of the two offerings. Cain's offering, which was rejected, and Abel's offering, which was accepted. This is where we see this. So, Cain and Abel, two brothers, sons of Adam and Eve, they go and they go to offer worship to God. This is part of fundamentally what it means to be human. We're worshiping creatures. So they go to worship. And it says, Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil, and in the course of time, Cain brought the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. That makes sense. He's a farmer. He brought the fruits of his labor. Abel brought uh, an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. That makes sense. He's a shepherd. So here's these two. Uh, We have no idea how old they are. I imagine maybe they were, I just imagine everybody in the Bible must have said otherwise it's the same age as me. So maybe they're 38. I don't know. Maybe they're 15. Who knows? Uh, Maybe they're 75. Maybe they're 300 years old. Who knows? But these two, let's say young men, come to worship, fruits of their labor, and God looks upon Abel's offering and he says, that's so beautiful. I love that guy. I accept Abel, I love you. It's beautiful. And then he looks at Cain and he says, no. What's interesting is that the text doesn't give us an immediate reason why. Why was Cain's offering rejected? Throughout time, there's been a lot of theories. I remember when I was a little kid in Sunday school, I was taught that it was because Cain brought fruits and vegetables and Abel brought ham. And we know that, you know, you're supposed to sacrifice animals. That's what we do with the Bible, right? So Cain brought the wrong kind of offering. So, well, you know what? That's, uh, may the Lord bless whoever taught Sunday school that day, but that is just not true. Uh, if we read through and, uh, in the, later in the Pentateuch, all the different kinds of offerings that God t- tells his people to bring, we see all kinds of stuff, including grain offerings, uh, produce offerings, uh, drink offerings. So the outward form of Cain's offering, bringing produce, nothing wrong with that. So it has to be something else. Why would God reject an offering from somebody coming to worship him? Isn't God gracious? Doesn't God accept anyone who would come to him? Why would he do this? Well, if we read through all of scripture, there's a few places where we pick up some clues. One of them is Psalm 51, which says this. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David. He's, it's a psalm of repentance. He's reflecting on his sin. And he says this. He's asking God to forgive his sins. 
He says, don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit. Sustain me. And I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. He prays, Lord, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. You are my Savior. I want to sing your righteousness. I want to declare your praise. And then he says this. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. And you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. You, O Lord, will not despise the contrite heart. We look at David's psalm and he's praying that God would forgive his sins. And then he says this strange thing. He says, if you, if a sacrifice was going to work, if an offering at the temple was going to was going to work for this. I would bring it, but you don't want those things. What you want is a heart that's broken over our sin. What you want is a heart and a spirit that's humble and that's devoted to you. David teaches us that offerings, worship doesn't mean anything if it's outward form only and doesn't come from a humble contrite heart before God. So I think we can look back and say, oh, Cain's outward form was good. Maybe there was something wrong with his heart. Maybe his heart was not in it. Well, we keep looking through scripture related to why an offering would be rejected. And that's not the only thing. That's not the only reason why an offering that's outward form is good would be rejected by God. That's one. The heart's not in it. But there's another one. And we see it mentioned by the prophet Micah. In chapter 6 of his book, he says this. With what shall I come before the Lord to bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings or calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression or the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And he says this, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. David tells us that the sacrifice is no good unless your heart's in it. Micah tells us that the sacrifice is no good unless your actions are in it. You can't go to God and worship him and celebrate being reconciled to him and Jesus Christ and then turn around and act unjustly to somebody else. The sacrifice that God requires is for us to act justly, to love mercy, and to be humble as we walk before God. These are the two things that we find in Scripture, the two reasons we find in Scripture why God would reject an offering when the outward form is good. These are the only two reasons. So when Cain comes alongside his brother and offers outwardly an equivalent offering, the fruits of his labor, lays them down before God, and God looks at Abel, and he says, yes, and he looks at Cain and says, no. It's because there was a problem with Cain's heart, and there was a problem with Cain's actions. Here's why I'm pointing this out. Sin outdoes itself. 
like tribbles. It has a tendency to multiply and grow and take over everything. And here we see Cain doing something that looks like worship. Showing up for church, smile on his face, well-dressed, great attitude. Outwardly, he bows down before the Lord, but secretly, deep, deep, deep in his heart, there's this little dark corner of rebellion and hatred. Where did that come from? We probably got it from his dad. Same place we get it. But sin started so small for Cain. We, If we were there that day, we might not even recognize it. But then we see it grow and grow and grow until next thing that happens, he is enticing his brother out into the field. We don't know how Cain murdered Abel. But based on the lack of, you know, efficient killing technology, it was, it was, it was really bad. It was gruesome. Do you see how sin started in this little hidden? Sin has a tendency to outdo itself. Folks, like Cain, many of us show up for worship. And we think, oh, well, I just, I got to go to church. I got to smile at people. I got to do the thing and I'm going to be good. Well, doing the thing is really important. But if your heart and your actions are harboring rebellion, Harboring hatred, even if it's tiny, teeny, tiny, no one else sees it. Like God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. So that's the first thing for us to grab onto. This makes it personal, folks. Because we can point our fingers at Cain and say, look at, look at this guy. Look at this idiot trying to come before God hiding sin in his heart. And I'm reminded of Jesus' own words. But, but the one that doesn't have sin himself throw the first stone. Cain is us here. That's scary. Sin outdoes itself. So that's the first thing. How we take a hold of this is, Recognizing the truth of what sin does and owning it for ourselves. Here's the second thing. Sin outdoes itself, but sin never outdoes grace. If you're a note taker, that's the second thing. Sin never outdoes grace. Folks, no matter how sin multiplies, no matter how it billows and rolls, no matter how it grows, no matter how it takes over, it can never, ever, ever, ever overtake grace. We see that in this story. God says to, well, look at how God responds well, let's back up. Even before that, even before God responds to Cain, let's just let's just connect the dots of grace showing up through the story. Okay, let's let's watch the progression of grace. We follow the progression of sin; it increases and increases until murder and chaos. Oh, and oh, and then uh, we didn't even mention like the the worst part. 
he kills his brother and then he goes away and then he has a bunch of kids and then he has this descendant, descendant Lamech who was like, oh, the thing Cain did, I'm going to do that even more. So it's growing generationally. And then he uh, he takes two wives and threatens them with violence. Hor- hor- Remember how we found out that after the fall, uh, that the, that's when, you know, God tells Eve that you're, you're going to desire your husband, but he's going to rule over you. And then within a few generations, we see this dude showing up on the scene with who writes a poem about how he's a murderer. And he takes two women and then threatens them with violence and it's celebrated. So horrible. We read this story and there is a, there is a very sharp crescendo of sin outdoing itself. But there's also a very sharp crescendo of grace matching sin step for step because sin can never overtake it. Look with me. uh, Well, consider with me how this starts. It says that Adam made love to his wife Eve. She became pregnant. That's amazing, by the way. Uh, Last I heard that God had sentenced them to death. And now we see life on death row. That's grace. And she gives birth to Cain, and she says, with the help of the Lord, I I brought forth a man. Now, he was born a baby, not a grown man. I think what Eve is saying here is, there's a new Adam on the scene. We, we We could try this again. We have a second try, a second go. That's God's grace. And then she gives birth to another son, Abel. What's going on here? This... This is amazing. God is just giving good gifts. And then we talked about how God rejected Cain's offering. But have we thought about the wonder and the miracle that God accepted Abel's offering? If all of us are like Cain and that we harbor evil in our hearts, what made Abel so special that he comes before the Lord and God accepts his offering? And the answer is nothing. Abel's offering was accepted because he had faith. And it says in Ephesians 2 that faith is not something of yourself. It's a gift from God. So right here, as we see each step, we see sin growing. We also see grace going. And then after Cain, his offering is not accepted. The Lord pulls him aside and he gives him another chance. He says, Cain, what are you so upset about? Look, let's come back. If you do the right thing, you'll be accepted. That reminds me of the story we read earlier about Mary and Martha and Jesus. Famous story. Jesus is teaching. Mary is right there with the disciples at her feet learning. Martha is preparing. She's distracted. She's cooking a meal or doing something. A good thing. But something's going on with her heart. She goes to Jesus. She says, you tell Mary. She's supposed to be with me back here. And Jesus says, Martha. Can you see that Mary has chosen the better way? That wasn't a condemnation. That was Jesus's way of saying, look, there's another seat here for you. Come on. We see God doing that with Cain. Hey, buddy, let's try it again. And then Cain hardens. He goes out, he kills his brother. And then what happens? The Lord shows up not to condemn, but to offer grace. He says, Cain, where are you? What are you doing? Cain hardens again. And then when God exiles him, Cain, we see this like narcissistic self-concern. Oh, this is all about me, Lord. What does God do? He meets him with grace. 
look, I'm going to protect your life. Why did God do that? Well, it says in Romans that the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. God gives Cain three second chances. And then when Cain refuses all of it, he goes and he has his descendants and he builds what? A city. Cities are good things. God uses Cain in order to develop ordered urban civilization in the world. We can't be in the garden anymore. What are we going to do? We're just going to wander all over the place? No, God gives them a city. And he does it through Cain. That's grace. And then as Cain is having descendants and they just get worse and worse and worse with each generation, God pours out grace again in the form of what we would call common grace. He gives good gifts for all of humanity, even through these sinful people. We get agricultural technology. We get metallurgy. And we get my favorite thing ever, musical instruments. God is matching the rebellion with grace. And then at the end, we see the most beautiful grace of all. Another boy, another son, another Adam, if you will. Do you see how even though sin is growing, it can never outgrow grace? Sin outdoes itself, but sin can never outdo grace. Folks, this is important for us. There's such a strong temptation to try to fight fire with fire when it comes to uh, injustices in the world. I think a great example is if we all just went home and we looked at our social media pages. And we looked at how when people say terrible things, Other people try to fix it by doing what? Saying terrible things back. But if sin outdoes itself, the ends never justify the means. But if sin can never outdo grace, that means the only way to push back the tide of sin in the world is to do so by being grace-filled people. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Or as Jesus said, I didn't come to the world to condemn the world. That's interesting because he has every right to. He says, but I came so that the world would be saved through me. So sin outdoes itself. Sin can never outdo grace. These are two things that we need to hold on to as we consider this beautiful and also tragic story about us. And there's one more thing. Sin outdoes itself. Sin can never outdo grace. And the last thing is this. Grace always outdoes sin. Do you see it? Sin outdoes itself, but it can't outdo grace. Grace always keeps up. But then the last thing is grace doesn't just keep up with sin. It always wins. Sin can never outdo grace. And grace always, always, always outdoes sin. We may not see it in the short term, but in ultimate reality, and in the long term, and in the kingdom of God, mercy always triumphs. We see this at the end. Story doesn't just end with the city and the civilization and God making sure people do okay, even though they're bad. 
It ends with Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son named Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Interesting. When Cain was born, she said, God has given me a man. Here she says, God has given me another child. That There's something there. The word for child in Hebrew is zira. Maybe some translations might say offspring. That's because it's the exact same word used. Remember in Genesis 3.15, where God looked at Eve, looked at uh, Adam and Eve, and then he looked at Eve and he said, I will put enmity between, oh, I'm sorry. He looks at the serpent and he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, zero, and hers. Zero, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Remember that? After the fall, when God gives this this poetic, they call the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, and he tells the serpent who sort of instigated this rebellion and got Adam and Eve to buy into it, he says, look, uh, going forward, I'm going to, even though you guys have become friends and enemies with me, I'm going to make you enemies and I'm going to take back the man and the woman as my friends. And the way I'm going to do it is that the woman's zira, her offspring, the people, the person that comes from her, he is going to crush your head. So Eve becomes the mother of the people of God. And Eve becomes the mother, eventually down the genealogical line of the people of God embodied in one single son, one human being, Jesus Christ, born of a woman in the fullness of time to crush the head of the serpent. That's what that's all about. Well, here it says uh, that God gave them. That, that they, you know, were together, and that she became, she they conceived, and that they had another son, another zero. This is signaling us that God's promise is not defeated. Cain rebelled, Abel died, but there is another son who is coming, and and he has another son named Enosh. Sounds like the name of Cain's son, Enoch. And if we actually follow Seth's genealogy, the first few generations, the names match very closely with Cain's first few generations. And the reason is, is because this second, well, third son, this new son, is replacing the rebellion that Cain brought into the world. Do you see it? What the author is showing us is that God's response to the rebellion that starts small and takes over everything is grace. And grace doesn't just hold back evil. Grace replaces it with goodness. Folks, here is how this all wraps up. Oh, I almost forgot the greatest verse in this whole thing at the very end. Verse 26 says, at the birth of this child, it says, at that time, what? People began to call on the name of the Lord. It's a full reversal. Here's the big idea. God's promise to undo the curse of sin through the offspring of the woman. 
it would not fail with the rebellion of Cain and the death of Abel. By grace, God gave her another son. At the birth of this son, we receive the people of God, the prophets, the patriarchs, and the new Adam. Put away sin. Folks, every single one of us is like Cain. Every single one of us have brought the triples onto our ship, and they're taken over. And God has given us grace to hold back, and that's wonderful. But the common grace of just goodness in the world, music and cities and happy thoughts, those are wonderful things. But they will never, ever, ever, ever fix what's wrong with them. The only thing they can is the grace given in the Son, Jesus Christ. The new Adam, born of a woman. So, going back to our Facebook feeds, going back to the way we live life, going back to being reconciled to God and reconciled to our neighbors, going back to living in a Cain and Abel world. Folks, there is only one thing that can change the world. And it's the grace of God given through Jesus Christ. Everything else, every other good thing is wonderful. And we should celebrate it and revel in it. And it's awesome. But folks, what has to take root in our heart and what has to take root in our actions is the grace of Jesus Christ. That's how the world gets healed. Because when he appears, that's when people who formerly were slaves to sin begin to wake up and call in the name of the Lord. Only he can do it. And as it says in Romans, everybody who calls in the name of the Lord is saved. So as we finish this series in Genesis, this origin story, we started with God and his goodness creating a place to dwell with human beings. And we end with God and his goodness creating a way for people to dwell with him. And it turns out that that place is right here. And that way is Jesus Christ. So now he has left us, his people, the offspring of Eve, to go out and let people know. To go out and confront the injustice in the world armed with grace. And that's what we're called to do. Praise Jesus that he has given us this gift. Let's pray.